Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Hello, welcome to Smart Arts here on Triple R. Uh, my name is Oliver Coleman. I'm filling in for Richard Watts this week. I was here last week. Richard is taking another week off, uh, but rest assured, I reckon he will be back next week to fill you in on everything that's been going on in his world uh, and all the things that he's been seeing in the arts. Underneath Ms. Archer is a new play, part drama, part comedy, opening tomorrow night at St. Martin's Theatre in South Yarra. Written and performed by two very familiar faces of Australian stage and screen who also happen to have quite a long history of collaborating with each other, Louise Siverson and Peter Houghton. I'm joined today on the phone by one half of that dynamic duo this morning to chat about their new production, Louise Siverson. Louise, thanks so much for joining me here on Smart Arts today. Thank you so much for having me. Louise, you had the first uh, preview of the play last night, to my understanding. So thanks so much for getting up and chatting with me. How did it feel putting the play on uh, in front of an audience for the first time? Well, it's it's always strange, Oliver, because, I mean, you you haven't had that element. I mean, of course, we've got our creatives out the front, but they've seen it, you know, 7,000 times. So by that point, (laughs) they're only concentrating on their part of it. They're not really looking at you anymore. so it's always this strange other entity that enters the building and you go, oh, my God, now there's something else that we're dealing with, um, which, of course, is the nature of live theatre. But we had a wonderful night and the audience was incredibly responsive and there was a lot of laughter and a lot of joy and a lot of silence whilst they listened and navigated the, the plot points and, uh, you know, became attached to these two people. So uh, it was very exciting. I mean, the whole process has been incredibly exciting. Yeah, fantastic. So I might get you to just start us off, Louise, by giving us kind of a brief overview of what the show is about and what an audience can expect if they come like last night's audience to uh, see what's going on in the theatre. Absolutely. Uh, Our play is called Underneath Mazacha, and I play Mazacha, Kelly Archer. And Kelly is an international flight attendant, senior flight attendant, and um, with with the gold button. And um, <laughs> she uh, travels around the world and has never had uh, any problems in her working life. She's been exemplary and, her, in her words, ha- has had 35 years of flight attendant perfection. <laughs> so uh, she meets with her demise by uh, an incident on an international flight where she has an altercation with a passenger... And as a consequence, that that incident is filmed and she is then thrown into the world of cancel culture and uh, her whole world starts to turn upside down. And she lands into London and retreats to her now dead mother's apartment, who's been... Her mother has lived in, in London. And she escapes and seeks refuge in this empty apartment and is then visited by um, an unusual entity in the form of a gentleman from the past. <laughs> so they spend then a period of about 12 hours together where they dissect the incidents that both of them have confronted, which have caused them uh, to reassess the way that they address the world themselves and other people. So it's it's a story of both time travel, but it's a story of how do we return from a mistake um, and what do we do in relationship to our missteps 
do we own up or do we try and escape it? Do we, do we, you know, perform our lives in a sense of denial? So it's a, it's sort of a complex um, uh, interrogation of, of a series of, of, of aspects of what's going on culturally now, but also what the past brings into the present. Yeah, right. So there's a lot. It sounds like there's a lot going on in this show. You know, we're traveling oh, yeah. to different places. It's touching on kind of many different themes. You mentioned cancellation there, yeah. uh, and the blurb for the work says that the, the, the show touches on those sort of topics. You know, cancellation, yeah. internet furor, the kind of confusions <laughs> and quandaries of modern life. What did you see happening in the world that kind of inspired you to write this play? What did you see that you kind of wanted to? comment on and that you saw as a rich territory for creating drama and comedy in the show? Well, um, Peter Houghton, my um, dear friend and colleague um, and co-writer, producer, and, and Peter's also a, a hugely famous director within Australia and, and a beautiful director, so he's directing the show as well. Mm-hmm. So the, the poor man has an endless quantity of responsibilities every night. Um, so we, we've been collaborating on and off for years in a whole different... Um, series of forms, both as actor-director, as actors, and then as writers together, making work. And one aspect of the work that both Pete and I really are drawn to is the nature of comedy and why comedy is so useful in, in dissecting ideas, because it allows people a place where they can laugh whilst they're investigating very difficult subject matter. So we wanted to look at the things that worry us and confuse us um, and that we feel maybe that we ourselves have been less than our best in. So we took to setting up a a series of possibilities for ourselves and then settled upon this idea of of the past coming to revisit the future um, and seeing the world from a very different perspective. So we've got a gentleman that arrives from um, 1216 into today... (laughs) And what does he bring uh, and what does she bring for this person from the past for, to review what happens based on um, an event that he's involved in and, and, and puts in motion? So we thought that that... And, of course, we look out into the world today in the social media pylons that occur and mm-hmm. thought how interesting that is. Um, and we're also, of course, interested in the nature of dialogue and, and sticking with people and and remaining in that dialogue with other people. And as artists, we have to do that. I mean, we're all doing that. I'm not selecting off artists as being mm-hmm. anything specific, but um, but from our perspective as artists in a room making work, we have to keep staying in the work to find out where it lives. And that means that there can be argument, but, but civil argument amongst each other about which way the, the project will will move. And that, I think, was a really good template for us to look at how can we make this work and stay in the room with each other and really get to the root of the problem. And these two people are forced to stay in this room because one can't get out because there's a the paparazzi, etc., outside, mm-hmm. and the other doesn't know how to get back into his own time frame. So they have to keep working with each other. And and it was just an interesting idea for the two of us as people to think, where do we fail in this when in our own personal lives? And where do we succeed and why do we succeed? What does it take? 
Yeah, you're talking a little bit there about the nature of the collaboration between you and Peter kind of mirroring the relationship between the two characters on stage. I'm interested in in the nature of collaboration between writers and and how that kind of of works. Paint me a little picture of how that kind of writing process between Peter and you works. Are you kind of both at the keyboard together? Is one of you at the keyboard whilst the other walks around doing silly voices of a man from 1216? How does that collaboration actually work? work whilst you two are writing the show? Well, in Peter and my case, what we do is um, uh, we sit down and we consider the idea. We sit down and consider uh, how our characters would best hold that information and move it forward. In this case, um, we thought about these two characters and thought how interesting it would be to come from the perspective of two people who were travelling through time, one who literally travels in time, which is the air hostess. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once you've, we've found a way to navigate those people into the space, we start thinking about the form of what each act of the play will hold and what, what's necessary for it to keep moving the plot and the story forward and keep uncovering these people through each of these particular scenes that we're creating. And so what we do is we map all of that out, all the scenes out, all the plot points out, all of that, and then Pete goes away and he does his responsible um, for forming the dialogue of that and then we come back together and we read the dialogue and then we start playing around with the dialogue so it's a sort of um it's an it's an edit by by what Pete brings to the table in that way and then we can if it doesn't work then we can rethink a plot point and go back and then Pete can consider how the dialogue's going to slot into that um, and some, I mean, you know, and people work in different ways. Some people do work at the computer together. We yeah. don't do that. Um, and then we, we talk endlessly about the ideas and what these people are thinking and feeling and what we want them to, what the experience is that we want them to have with each other and what the experience is that we want to have as two actors together. Um, so, and it moves and it sort of morphs, Oliver. Sometimes it's, it's like that and sometimes you know, we get up and we just move the work and see what happens. So there's never a set form by which it's done. And then, of course, we've just spent four weeks in the rehearsal room and a whole bunch of stuff got taken out and a whole bunch of stuff got put in that wasn't there when we started rehearsal. Yes. So it's and, – and, and it's still moving. We're still changing it. So it's a work in progress right the way through, which is fantastic, terrifying, but fantastic. Yeah, so it's a comedy. You're talking about the movement of the work, the development of the work. Last night, yeah. it was the first time that you put this show on in front of yeah. an audience. Sometimes with comedy, it doesn't really find itself until it is there in front of an audience and you're hearing those laughs from the audience. Last night, yeah. how was the development of that comedy? Were you finding that you were getting laughs in places you weren't expecting? Were, were things surprising you in the moment? Uh, they started laughing from the first little moment, which, <laughs> I mean, is just awe-inspiring when you think particularly because we've made the work, we're, Peter's directing the work, we're performing the work, uh, and we've got all these marvellous creatives who've put their love into it for us. And you go, oh, my God, it works. <laughs> they actually get it. And, and you know, we didn't go off piste, in it, in it, and it is, it is going to affect people. And they laughed all the way through. And then in the moments where we start to deal with more serious subject matter, 
the room together comes into a silent space where the, the audience can navigate, oh, we've changed direction and now we're dealing with something quite deep and moving. Mm-hmm. And they just, they went in all the various directions. And of course, there's always things they laugh at, which you hadn't planned on. You think, oh, you think that's funny. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so, I mean, and that's wonderful. That, and of course, that's, you know, every night is different because every audience has its own life too. And each audience is in, incredibly different. So, of course, tonight won't be the same as last night. But yes, I mean, it's, it's deeply rewarding to think that you've offered up something joyous. Yeah, great. People will leave, and just for that hour and 20 minutes, they've forgotten all their troubles, and they get to just laugh and be in community with other people who are enjoying as well. Um, that, that's a wonderful thing between us and them. And, and, and you go, well, we made it, and it worked. So I think, wow, that's, that's incredible. <laughs> That is, and you've got one more preview tonight and then opening yeah. tomorrow night. Oh, you're here on Triple R for Smart Arts. I'm Oliver Coleman. I'm chatting to Louise Siverson about a new show, Underneath Mizarcha, which is being performed at St. Martin's Theatre. Louise, you and Peter, the director, have a long history of collaborating with each other. Peter, I suppose, is kind of the go-to man for directing comedy shows around Melbourne. Uh, what yeah. do you think it is about a kind of... Um, I, I, I suppose, what do you think makes someone better at working with comedy? Is it kind of like an unexplainable sense of, of, of what makes something funny or, or, or is there something kind of more technical to it? Uh, I, think there, I think both those things, Oliver, but I think, um, I, I, I think there, there's an innate sense of timing that happens for somebody who understands comedy uh, because comedy is very technical, uh, despite what... Um, what often people feel or think about comedy, it's not easy. Comedy is extremely difficult to do well. Um, unlike drama, which you know can you you can just move into drama in a in a funny way. And I'm underestimating that that's also difficult as a performer. But but to do comedy seamlessly, uh, it, it takes incredible amounts of of application and timing and repeating and repeating and repeating and repeating so that you're right on the point of that moment when the gag is going to fly. And it's also to do with an alchemy that happens between people. And God willing, I'm touching wood as I'm speaking. (laughs) Uh, Pete and I were gifted with that um, as an offering between two people who just love being funny. Um, And and so when we come together, there's something really wonderful for the two of us that happens. Mm-hmm. Because also, I'm deeply admiring of his capacity to be funny. So I'm impressed while I'm watching him be funny, which I think there's also something lovely in that. Yes. that you're, you're watching a sort of a reverence at the same time as a joy. So um, is there an answer to why something's funny or why somebody can be funny? I don't really know. I think it's something mysterious, and I think that's what we also love. We love that we don't really understand why we're laughing because often it's excruciating, but we just do. Uh, but there's a lot of work. I mean, you know, for Pete and I getting up there every night, what, what I imagine hopefully looks seamless and easy, um, there's been hours and hours of repetition and repetition and, and taking away things that don't serve the gag. So, and it's thrilling. Um, you know, when it works, it's just like, oh, my God, it, it went off, you know, that's, it's as thrilling to us as it is to the audience. So that's a wonderful thing. Yeah, and also often the most kind of thrilling thing for an audience are those laughs where you can't quite yeah, pinpoint the reason yeah. why you're laughing. It's yeah. just that kind of contagious feeling of the laughing kind of yeah. feeding the next laugh. 
Yeah, or you're laughing against yourself. You're horrified that you're laughing, but you can't stop. Yes. I mean, they're the best. Absolutely. Because you think, oh, my God, this, this is not right. I shouldn't be laughing here, but I am. <laughs> so you're carried away just by that moment. And also it's infectious. You know, when an audience takes off, it starts to have a life of its own. And it builds because once the audience has confidence that they can laugh and be free, it's a, it's a great it's a great gift and it's a great freedom that they experience and and, that, and and it happens between the two of us. So they're not alone, they're with us and we're enjoying them enjoying us, you know? Yes. And, and, and Louise, just doing a little peruse of your Wikipedia page this morning, uh, yeah. uh, you've got a long history of kind of history and stage and screen. It also says that in your early days you performed at St. Martin's Youth Theatre, the Youth Theatre Company in I residence did. at St. Martin's. How does it feel to be back there treading that? the boards? Yeah, amazing. And I, I mean, I, I, it doesn't escape my, my thought, actually being in the theatre last night, waiting for the audience to arrive, and I thought, this is where I started. I mean, it's very moving to me. And, you know, my husband was saying to me this morning, how about that, there you are all these years later, and you went back and you've given back into the place that gave all that to you. I mm. mean, wow, that's amazing. And also what I thought when, after I finished last night, I thought, for young people, because I had some young people, friends coming to the audience last night, young actors, and I thought, you know, because they know that I went to that school there, mm-hmm. and you go, see, it is possible. You can do this. You can make something that you want to make if you just stay with it for, for all these years and just keep practising the craft and doing your job and studying and giving it something. Here I am. I'm, I'm back there offering St. Martin's a thank you for what it gave me right in the beginning, that it, that it said that I had a chance, which and, is beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like you really gave back to the audience last night and will continue to do so throughout the season. Absolutely. Opening tomorrow night, Underneath Ms. Archer brings a 21st century woman face-to-face with a medieval man in a culture war that takes no prisoners. And today I've been speaking with the writer and co-star of that production, Louise Siverson. Louise, thanks so much for chatting to me on Smart Arts today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks. Good luck with this season. And if you're interested in seeing that production, it is playing from tonight, opens tomorrow, previews tonight, until July 16th in the Irene Mitchell Studio at St. Martin's Theatre in South Yarra. You can grab a ticket and find out more about the production at underneathmizarcher.com. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. You're here with Oliver Coleman filling in for Richard Watts here on Smart Arts Today, as well as in filling in for Richard Watts. About once a month, I do a graveyard shift here at Triple R. And in the wee dark hours of the night, I'll be in the studio completely alone in the Triple R building. And it seems like something changes when you're on your lonesome in those quiet hours, when most of the city is sleeping, the world becomes strange, the imagination seems to take flight into curious, unexpected places. A new exhibit called Night Shifts at Melbourne University's Buxton Contemporary considers the importance of solitude in contemporary art and looks to the nighttime, to the after hours, as a metaphor for that, for that solitude. Joining me in the studio today uh, to chat about that exhibit is one of the co-curators of Night Shift, Annika Aiken. Annika, thanks so much for joining me on Smart Arts today. Hello, great to be here. Uh, so, Annika, I might just get you to start off as co-curator of the exhibit. I might get you to start off by get, begin kind of talking to me, kind of giving an introduction to the exhibit and what this kind of starting point was for you and your, and your co-curator, what the beginning idea was for this, for this exhibit. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I worked on this project with my co-curator, Hannah Presley, who is senior curator um, at the Unimob Museums and Collections. And we were really interested, I suppose, in a context of exhibition making and contemporary arts practice at the moment that really centres and privileges collaboration and ideas of of light and enlightenment and you know we recognize the absolute importance of that way of working but we wanted to I suppose acknowledge the importance of solitude and reframe it as a potentially positive mechanism for artistic practice so we wanted to be able to show the full picture and that working alone being alone rest time at the end of projects, times of perceived inactivity, anxieties, fears, they're all perfectly natural and necessary parts of of life and of being a a solo artist, Mm. a studio artist. And I suppose also in the context of the University of Melbourne, the Buxton Gallery faces onto VCA. So we've got a lot of art students, um, the Victorian College of the Arts, who are really grappling with this... um, question what does it mean to to pursue a studio-based arts practice going into the future what does that working alone look like so we wanted to to unpack some of the the ideas around that through the collection mm. and the show's called night shifts it kind of looks at the night time kind of as 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 kind of an experiential mm. kind of metaphor for that solitude that kind of solo practice as an artist what was it about the 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 night that you wanted to use as a metaphor for that kind of solo studio practice that you're talking about I think probably Hannah and I both found that it wasn't actually during the day while we were supposed to be at our desks working where we had our our best ideas and felt our most creative it was actually at the end of the day when we were at home when we were supposed to be sleeping you know and I guess for us we realized that creativity doesn't happen on a defined schedule Um, so so for us on a personal level we kept we kept having that experience and we also found you know looking at the night time and the shadows as a bit of a metaphor for the unseen Mm -hmm. um, was something that we were really interested in and something that came out through the collection. You know, we saw the opportunity through so many different works that we're really looking at, um, you know, artists who are so skilled at capturing um, really ephemeral um, sensations or or aspects of the internal experience, Um, you know, artists who turn to things like techniques like automatic drawing to to bring the subconscious to the surface. Mm. Um, You know, gravity and invisible forces and and how that plays into the way that uh, sculptors in the collection have worked. And we found that there was this, you know, the night time and this idea of the after hours was this beautiful kind of binding metaphor for, for all of these different things. Yeah, and I was lucky enough to be able to visit the gallery yesterday. And and, and I must say that the experience of being in there is quite immersive you know it's different to your kind of brightly lit kind of white walled gallery that the the lighting is kind of dim it's quite dark in certain parts the lighting kind of shifts as you move for move kind of through the gallery what how kind of do you think about those elements as to create kind of like a a kind of an experience that travels throughout the exhibit for the people visiting Mm. That was really important to us to be able to capture this sense of, of shift. And look, we don't say that the exhibition is, is a kind of journey from, from dusk to dawn, but yep. there is this real sense of, of shift in lighting. You know, when you start off in the first two spaces, 
that are, are looking a little more at ideas around the legacy of modernism and very light, bright spaces that um, I suppose take away opportunities for, for privacy, rest and reprieve. Um, we kind of use use ideas of the white cube gallery in that context as a bit of a starting point. And then as you shift into the main gallery space, it, it's sort of this this portal that takes you into a, a very darkened, um, quite soft, immersive environment. And we wanted to create an exhibition that people, you know, felt comfortable in, that they didn't feel they need to pass through very quickly, as you often do in an exhibition. We wanted you know, there to be lots of darkened corners to hide and places to rest and, and places to sit. And we really wanted to encourage people to, to stay and spend time with a lot of the works and, and to really foster the potential for contemplative engagement mm. in the exhibition. So there are a number of, of zones where you really can just stop and take time. Um, but towards the, I suppose, the end points of the exhibition upstairs, there is there is a shift again of a little more light and a little more energy coming back in. Um, so I, I'm glad you felt that, that <laughs> there was a journey because we, we did, we worked, we worked hard to get that right through lighting and paint colours and design. Yeah. yeah, I think how you were talking about it then really did kind of reflect my experience. You know, it was, it did feel to me like a space for kind of reflection and, and contemplation. In a way, I felt like this exhibit was, was kind of working in opposition or kind of against kind of the way that a lot of kind of, you, you know, blockbuster, blockbuster exhibits are kind of put together for their kind of loud, lots mm-hmm. of bright colours kind of seemingly created to create like an Instagrammable experience. Was that something that you were, you were thinking about in the creation of this exhibit, something that you wanted to kind of comment on or create like an alternative experience to? We did. We absolutely wanted to push back in that uh, push back against that um, in in a gentle and constructive way, but it has I mean you could say it's backfired because actually our our big commission downstairs by the wonderful Canberra based artist Lisa Samet has turned out to be um, extremely Instagrammable. <laughs> <laughs> It's had some moments of virality uh, on certain social media platforms, which we, I must admit, we didn't anticipate. So there is a bit of an irony in that. But, you know, look, if people are engaging with the work and enjoying, you know, spending time in that space, that's beautiful. We'll take it. But, yeah, I think think we did want to... Um, challenge that that model of, of very crisp paired back exhibitions that are you know that have these these moments that are yeah instagrammable that are single shots single takes and you know a, an exhibition experience that often asks for quite a superficial level of engagement by visitors we really want particularly our VCA students and members of the public to come back to the exhibition and spend time and we want it to be based more on a feeling than mm-hmm. being too didactic. We didn't want to tell people what they should feel or, or, you know, the usual approach to exhibitions where each room has a very kind of descriptive text. This is what this room is about. Mm-hmm. We wanted to convey those ideas and feelings more subtly through through other, um, other ways of working. So, yeah. Yeah, you spoke there a little bit about Lisa Samet's work mm. kind of going viral online. That's kind of one of the large commissions that you have in the exhibit. Talk to me, introduce to me a, a little bit a, about the kind of various artists that you've got. You've got a couple of commissions and then you've also drawn upon part of the collection of the Buxton as well. We do. So the exhibition has, it's 
approximately <coughs> 30 artists, um, and they're drawn primarily from the Michael Buxton collection, which is part of the University of Melbourne's uh, broader art collection holdings. And then we have brought in, we have a loan, and we have a few works uh, by artists in, in the broader collection, outside of the Buxton collection. And then we have commissioned two new works by artists not currently in the university holdings to kind of stretch and, and expand some of the ideas that, that we built through collection works. So our two um, commissions that we're, we're very excited about and very privileged to work with such amazing artists. Um, the first is uh, by Lisa Samet, who I mentioned, Canberra-based, and that's sort of the main installation on the ground floor of the gallery, and it looks at um, the trajectory of Halley's Comet, um, which the artist um, encountered uh, early in her life and all going to plan, she will encounter again later in life. And the artist talks very beautifully about this sense of comfort in knowing that, you know, she's on her her journey and she can't see the comet. Um, it's, it's on its way, but they will meet again. There's this defined start and, I suppose, end point on these two different journeys. And it brings this idea of cosmic time and, and human lifespan into um, this beautiful kind of relatable scale that that's quite hard to achieve mm -hmm. and and really essentially comes down you know back to that idea of the unseen journey um and um I suppose the natural and unavoidable cycles that we experience um you know both both in life on earth and and out in the cosmos mm -hmm. um and then the other commission is a sound and video work by Dr Vicky Cousins and Rob Bundle um, which is called First Sound, First Light. And this work's really talking about ideas related to deep listening, um, particularly so for, for Vicky, uh, Gunditjmara, Kire Warong artist, you know, being on country is, is very important to her practice and it informs a lot of her cultural knowledge, but how she brings this and how she, um, working together with her husband, Rob Bundle, bring a lot of these ideas, you know, from, from their own sort of personal life back into their arts practice. And, and they were so generous on this project. They they shared a lot of footage of, of really personal moments. You know, that there's a, a beautiful image in the video work of Vicky, you know, looking out um, across the landscape, but equally another image of her at home in an armchair sort of staring off into space. Mm. And it's these, you know, how these different moments and, and phases um, and conditions are all part and parcel of the broader, you know, creative process. Yeah, and my experience of being there both with Vicky Cousins' work and Lisa Samet's work is they're both kind of large-scale works that take over the rooms that they're in, but they do provide that space to kind of sit down and reflect that kind of quiet moment, which, which I found uh, re really impactful. When, when you're working with kind of both commissions and kind of stuff works from the collection, what's kind of the, the how does that work as the kind of curator? Do you use those commissions as the starting point and then draw from the collection kind of off that? Or is it a little bit more kind of organic than that? You're kind of playing with kind of all realms at once it's it ended up this particular project ended up being very organic I think it came from a starting point of Hannah and I holding on to a feeling that we wanted to convey and actually there are three tiny little Peter Booth paintings in yeah. the exhibition which you might have seen and I think we both separately had been very drawn to those works they're so different from any of Peter's other works um, but Peter is a very important um, artist represented in the Buxton collection so that was I mean 
you could say it was a starting point for us. Um, you know, we wanted to work with Lisa, we wanted to work with Vicky and Rob, and there was this um, slow evolution of the project, I suppose, that there were, you know, there are works that were in from the collection that came back out, um, additional inclusions that happened closer to the time. So it was this constant, I think, as is often the case with curatorial practice, this constant readjusting and reframing right up until opening day there, there were still little subtle changes yeah. and shifts occurring yeah it was great yeah I loved seeing those small little paintings of Peter Booth after kind of being used to seeing his kind of large kind of cacophonous canvases at the at the NGV and that sort of thing I'm here chatting uh, with Annika Aiken one of the co-curators of Night Shifts at Buxton Contemporary Gallery that's showing at the moment uh, until October Annika do you think that the work the exhibit kind of looks at the nature of solitude in artistic practice do you think kind of with the I suppose the you know, the hyperconnectivity of today's world, where everyone's got a device on them. There's almost this kind of expectation upon artists sometimes as well to be kind of uh, showing and sharing their process on social media and that sort of thing. Do you think it's sometimes harder for artists to really kind of, you know, ground themselves in a sense of solitude these days? I think so. And there is, there's so much pressure. And I think one of the things we've tried to acknowledge is the you know, the anxiety and the, you know, there's a real psychological element to sustaining a solo practice. And, you know, a lot of artists from time to time experience a bit of imposter syndrome mm-hmm. or self-doubt. How how am I being perceived by my mm-hmm. audiences? Um, and, and we wanted to acknowledge that. There are a number of works that deal with this sense of the I suppose the shadow self, you, know, you can't have a, an exhibition about solitude without acknowledging some of those those darker or, or more challenging sides. Um, but we really wanted to acknowledge that, that is that is all part and parcel and that is normal. And if you want to to retreat from from the public eye, from the public gaze, um, you know, not only should that be okay, um, mm. but you know, perhaps it should be encouraged. Yes, and is that something that you're you were kind of more aware of and and, and considerate of, kind of post pandemic? Um, I suppose when when solitude was kind of enforced on us and, and enforced on a lot of artists as, as well as part of their practice. I think so, and I think you know Hannah and I both found that there was this real. Um, sort of whiplash at the end of particularly working in the arts towards the end of the pandemic there was this real push for everyone to to re-emerge and reconnect with everyone work together also you know in the arts sector resources are so limited Mm. you know it makes sense for for people to to work together and constantly plan in, in concert with each other and I think we you know we wanted to just take this opportunity it feels like the right time to, to reframe that solitude, not as a, a negative thing. You know, it has come very bound up in, uh, I think, a lot of a trauma and, and mm. you know, it's a, it's a time people may not want yeah. to, <laughs> to go back to. But, you know, actually we should find a way to still um, engage with being alone in, in a way that's not damaging. Yes, and and to my mind, this exhibit really managed to display that. Night Shifts is an exhibit currently showing at Melbourne University's Buxton Contemporary that explores the importance of solitude in contemporary art through metaphors of the night. I visited the exhibition yesterday and found it particularly enthralling. I've been joined in the studio today by co-curator of the exhibit, Annika Aiken. Annika, thanks so much for joining us on Smart Arts today. Thanks so much. 
If you're interested in visiting Buxton Contemporary, it's about a three-minute walk down into South Bank from NGV. Night Shifts is showing there until October 29th. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. More often than not, art organisations are run by people deeply concerned about the climate crisis. However, it's not always the case that those progressive ideals are reflected in the structures of how those organisations are run. A Climate for Art, ACFA, is a recently launched campaign that seeks to tackle this problem by bringing together a growing union of arts organisations and workers committed to responding to the climate crisis through tangible action and support. I'm joined in the studio today by Lana Nguyen, uh, one of the co-instigators of a Climate for Art campaign. Lana, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So, Lana, this is a new organisation you launched just the other day at the Footscray Community Arts Centre. How did A Climate for Art get started and what did you see happening in the kind of arts industry that you wanted to change and have an impact on? Yeah, I guess um, my other co-instigator, Eliki Reid, and I came together through a program um, with Theatre Network Australia. It was called Power Play and it was really looking at advocacy in the sector and it let us sort of zoom out and look at where we thought we needed to move in the ecology and both Aliki and I had uh, backgrounds in sort of environmental activism, Aliki with the Pacific Climate Warriors and me sort of with more student activism and food cooperatives and stuff like that. So we were really interested to see how we could bring those worlds into the art world where we were both working as independent producers. And Mm -hmm. I think we were really looking at our relationship base and the power that sat there, but also seeing an increasing amount of work around the climate crisis on the programming level, but it wasn't necessarily being reflected in the organisations and their structures. So we were really trying to, you know, tie that, that link together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so what do you think are the core ways in which kind of an organisation can respond to the climate crisis, do you think? I mean, there are so many ways and I think it can be often overwhelming, which is why we're starting with um, three initial simple asks or um, I guess like we're collecting people who are doing those things, who are divesting from um, fossil fuel funding, banking, superannuation and power. Mm -hmm. And so that's how we're beginning and that's the first step. But really the climate union's about all of the other things that we could be doing because we're really interested in the conversation about climate justice and, you know, what are the... the huge paradigm shifts that have to happen in response to the climate crisis because it's really not just about switching it out and you know making it green it's really about changing a lot of our culture as it exists today yeah so there's big kind of cultural shifts that have to happen kind of within organizations and i suppose within society more broadly obviously for us to really tackle the climate crisis as a, a planet i suppose you know that you're, you're kind of focused on, on on small to kind of medium-sized arts organizations what are the, are the challenges specifically that those organizations uh, face compared to say kind of a larger organization i might just move the mic a little closer as well. yeah sorry um Um, So I suppose like the small to medium organisations really struggle with amount of funding and amount of time that they have to really, um, you know, lead with their values, even though they do that again and again. But we really see that um, 
they also have this sort of nimbleness to them and they also have, I guess, more power um, than independent artists, for example. So we were really interested in starting with that um, part of the sector, but also the large companies like the majors who have, you know, millions of dollars um, accrued from their investments yearly. They are tied to government contracts because of the way that they are funded. So they also don't have that ability to shift straight away. So it's sort of creating this groundswell that then can create like larger lobbying power later. Mm -hmm. Uh, What sort of support does kind of ACFA provide to these organisations who are looking to kind of have a greater, you you know, system in place for them to take action against the climate crisis? Yeah, I guess we're instigating this platform that will have lots of resources that hopefully will make it easier to sort of follow the critical path to Mm -hmm. climate action but then also we're creating this union of organizations who we hope will lead and help each other so you know a big conversation we were having is how can we write climate change into our strategic plans how can we have time to think about this in our jobs that already feel so time pressured and you know I think lots of people in our conversations together are giving each other tips so it's really about what can happen when we come together collectively as well. Yeah and I think that's kind of probably often one of the things that 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 kind of workers in these small to medium organisations feel is that they're kind of stretched thin, they're doing the jobs of a thousand different people and sometimes it is difficult for this kind of, you know, issues like climate crisis, how the organisation can adapt to kind of be front of centre. So, yeah, is it part of that thing of the climate union, one of the kind of obligations of of, of joining ACFA to create this kind of sense of kind of building community and what organisations can do together to tackle climate crisis? Yeah, I think it's a really big platform for people to learn together yeah 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 and 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 so also um i kind of interested uh I, I suppose a lot of the organizations that i saw on the list were kind of very victoria focused obviously you've kind of started here you've got organizations you know such as aphid schoolyard studios those sorts of organizations in melbourne are you looking to grow from here towards kind of the the, the rest of australia yeah absolutely i think we're just starting with what we know and the people we know and starting mm-hmm. from we really want this to be a relational process and we don't And we also can imagine that there could be small pools of people in different states that are really, you know, um, leading the way in the way that they want to interpret this campaign. Um, But we will provide the system to link everyone together. Yeah, great. And and as you've been kind of reaching out to your community and I suppose also kind of continuing to grow to reaching out to people that you're kind of less familiar with, have you? what kind of has the response been so far and kind of what, yeah, organisations have you had um, seem to, you know, be enthusiastic about ACFA? I mean, I think in the small to medium sector, everyone cares so much about the work that they do that they have been really warm and supportive of this project. I think it's just the real difficult thing of, you know, these organisations are constantly working to just stay afloat and, you know, this larger crisis that is will undercut a lot of their work eventually is really hard to think about mm. and I think that's probably you know a universal problem across the board in terms of thinking about the climate crisis like how can we when we're thinking about how to survive every day but it's it's mounting you know we need to um, reach net zero in Australia by 2035 according to the Climate Council that's 12 years yes yeah. it's it's it's, um, it's getting serious it is getting serious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, get, it's getting pretty serious I suppose yeah so the act kind of looking towards core actions such as kind of uh, ethical banks, ethical superannuation and that sort of thing for arts organisation. It's also the case that kind of, you know, a number of arts organisations, especially in in places like WA, are still dependent upon kind of 
uh, fossil fuel money. You know, I think of organisations like the Western Australian Ballet or Western Australian Orchestra, Barking Gecko, even are getting kind of money from, you see, their corporate partners like Woodside Energy and that sort of thing. Is that also a part of the kind of campaign of ACFA to try and get arts organisations, um, you know, stopping getting funding and, and giving these fossil fuel companies a platform? I mean, I think that's something that the union members could definitely decide um, is something to look at in the future. But I think we're really trying to look at divestment initially because it really links to, you know, what are the banks that we're using? What are they um, funding specifically? You know, whether Mm. it's the Borough Pub or Santos in the Tiwi Islands, you can really tie um, the action very specifically to fossil fuel projects. And that sort of allows us to look into the landscape a little bit more. But I think... It can be difficult with sponsorship and I think, you know, we're asking people to divest and then invest in ethical banks and, you know, potentially we can see other sort of investments from that space come back into the arts. So I think part of that switch and, you know, refusing sponsorship can allow other people to take that place and that's what we're hoping to see. Yeah, hoping to see kind of other kind of more ethical corporate partners come in and take the place of those fossil fuel companies and that sort of thing. Uh, you're talking a little, a little bit earlier about kind of the, you know, the, the overwhelming nature of the coming climate crisis. And I suppose that's, that's something that I think about in my consideration of kind of art and, and the art world is that it is really difficult to kind of make work about the climate crisis you know it's kind of overwhelming it's con- confusing it's existential it's kind of it, it, it fills you, you with dread you know what kind of you know you've worked as an arts producer in the past and as, and as an artist in the past kind of alongside the climate activism what do you think are the challenges of kind of making art about the climate crisis and what can art do what power does it have to to confront this crisis that we're in I mean, I think that we really need to think about the ecology when we're making work to sort of create awareness of an issue. Are we giving the audiences the tools to really take action or do something with you? Like, mm. or if we're doing this research, then what is it for and how is it enacting this societal change that we want to see? I think that's a big question that I have. But I also think um, to sort of stop it being so overwhelming, we have tried to make sure that it's really relational. I think sometimes you can be like, I need to know all of the climate science. I need to be on top of everything to be able to move in this space. And we're really not about a perfect politic, but a Mm. first step. But also, it's not only about science. It's also about, you know, um, listening to First Nations communities who have been on the front line of this for a really long time and are deeply entrenched in these changes and being affected by these changes. So we're also um, asking organisations to be responsible for the lands that they're on. And, you know, this is part of that process. Yeah, and it sounds like uh, as an organisation you're kind of providing the resources and the ability for organisations to come together and kind of create that community to take those first steps. Lana, if organisations are interested in in learning more about ACFA and what they're doing and also taking part in joining, what's the best way of kind of getting in touch with you guys or finding a little bit more about the, the, the campaign? Yeah, um, I would say go to our website, which is a climateforart.com.au and there's a contact form there, but there's also all of our resources and some of the writings so you can see what we've been thinking about while we've been making this um, with the help of so much of our community.
Mm, thanks so much. So A Climate for Art is a campaign that launched just last week that seeks to bring together arts organisations to take tangible action in response to the climate crisis. Maybe you are an artist or an arts organisation. Feel free to reach out to Lana Nguyen and the other team, the rest of the team at A Climate for Art through their website, uh, which you can do right now, www.aclimateforart.com.au. Lana, thanks so much for joining me on Smart Arts and talking about this important issue with me. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 